So if you can, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. We're going to be studying that chapter here together today. Um, if you're not familiar with John 6, you might think, oh, okay, so we're just doing one chapter. Um, well, there's 71 verses. And so you might be thinking, and we're going to look at all of them? Well, the answer is yes. That's kind of how we roll here at Renewal Church. And so we want to read the Word. There is such power in having the Word of God simply read. And so we are going to read here just as we get started, just the first four verses. So John 6, 1 through 4. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Okay, so let's just stop right there and really look at what God's Word is saying. It begins by saying, after this. So those words refer to a like undefined period of time. So it doesn't say how long after this, just sometime after. Now we know it was probably a year after the events of chapters 1 through 5, because you may recall from chapter 2, where it described that it was a Passover, and Jesus then was cleansing the temple. And then um, we saw recently that he actually left the south. He left um, Judah, Jerusalem, and went up to the north. So now it says that it's Passover. So that would be about a year later from the events of chapters 1 through 5. And it says that a large crowd was following Jesus because of the miraculous signs that he was doing. So he was healing the sick. And it says that he goes up to the side of a mountain. And so there's the scene that's being set with a crowd that's following him here approaching the Passover. Verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to eat a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in this place. So the man sat down, about 5,000 in number. Now this is a massive crowd. Don't be deceived. When it says 5,000 men, understand that in the Jewish mindset, when they were counting crowds or counting people, so doing a head count, they would only count men. Now, I'm not saying this is a good thing, but I'm telling you what it was like in the ancient Jewish world. So if they were counting 5,000 heads of households, what that would mean is that there was at least 20, maybe even 25,000 people that were right there on this mountainside following Jesus. So I want you to picture if you've ever gone to an NBA arena, like I used to love watching Spurs games. And so if you can just picture an arena with 20,000 people packed in it. I know we're in COVID and no one watches games anymore, but back in the day when you actually could watch games, picture a massive arena with about 20,000 people all packed on the side of a mountain. And so then Jesus turns to Philip and he says, Hey, Philip, what do you think we should do? 
So Philip is like freaking out. He was like, uh, what do you, uh, uh, okay. So 200 denarii wouldn't even be enough to buy a little bit of food. So what is a denarius? A denarius was one day's wage. So 200 denarii would be, say, 200 days worth of labor. So picture about eight months of salary. So even though that might be significant resources, to buy that much food for that many people would not even come close to being enough money. But even if it were possible to order a bunch of pizzas or just call the catering company, uh, it didn't exist. <laughs> there was no such thing as drive throughs or catering companies. And so you, you couldn't just call in your cell phone and place an order. It, it didn't work that way. It just... This is describing a absolutely impossible situation. Now, do remember this. What you've already seen earlier in John is that Jesus has been described in chapter 1 as God in the flesh who created everything that exists. We've already seen in John that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We've seen that he is the Messiah and the Son of God, God in the flesh. We have already seen him change water into wine. And if you remember, it was an obscene amount of wine. We've already seen him in John heal a sick child from a distance. Heal a man who for 38 years was paralyzed and just say the word and he stands up and walks. We've seen right here in John 6 that he was healing multitudes and so all these crowds were following him. And so Jesus has already done the impossible. And at the very end of John chapter 5, he's describing how he is equal to God. So when Andrew brings a little boy's lunch and says, hey, here's five little loaves and two fish. And then Andrew actually asks the question, but what are these for so many? It just shows how the disciples just didn't get it. They, they thought, oh, poor Jesus, asking him to feed a multitude. That's just too much to ask. That's beyond his power. They were focusing on the impossible circumstances and their limited resources instead of focusing on the limitless resources of Jesus. They forgot. They forgot who Jesus was. They lost focus. Back to the text, verse 11, continuing in the story. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So here is a picture, much like with changing water to wine, this is a picture of abundance. The abundant provision of Jesus for those that will follow him. And don't think that the number 12 is here by accident. These 12 baskets of leftovers is showing how Jesus has power to spare. 
It's a miracle of pointing who Jesus is. It's saying, look at him. It's pointing to him. It's saying that Jesus has a grace that is generous. And the 12, these 12 baskets, represents how Jesus fed, well, God in the Old Testament fed the 12 tribes of Israel in the wilderness with bread from heaven. He rained down manna to provide for the 12 tribes. And here Jesus, who was there in the Old Testament, who was is the eternal Son of God, now the Son of God is providing true bread for all of his people. So this 12 points to the totality of the people of God. And he is providing abundantly and bringing true bread from heaven for his people. And we see that unfolding. Next couple of verses, verses 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, when you see the people crying out, this is the prophet, they're talking about Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where God inspired Moses to declare, he said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So many, many hundreds of years earlier, God had already promised that one day a prophet would come and that all of God's people would follow him, listen to him. Now, God had used Moses to deliver Israel from slavery in Egypt. And so they thought, like, the best that they could do was just imagine that this new prophet, this Messiah, that he would come and he would deliver them from slavery to Rome. So they were thinking in just very earthly means and weren't thinking about the eternal, about the spiritual. Here's what they saw. This guy has power. He just fed a multitude with just a little boy's lunch. And so they thought we need to tap into his power and we need to use it for ourselves. Because if we're honest, that's what pretty much all humans do when they have power, is they use it to further their own agenda. And if you don't think so, just look to Washington. I rest my case. It's part of the human heart and our sinful condition that we want power. We want fame. And if you think, no, I don't really want fame. Really? Well, then why do you have a YouTube channel? And why do you check how many subscribers you have? And why do you have social media? And why do you get really excited when your picture gets a whole bunch of likes? And why are you so down when you put together this amazing post and this perfectly positioned picture on your Instagram and then all of a sudden there's like very few likes and then you're kind of down on how come I didn't get any likes? We love being followed by crowds. Like it or not, it is just in the human heart to want the attention, to want the approval of others. 
And here you have these people that are looking to Jesus and they're assuming that he's just like them, a normal human. And he is human, but he is God in the flesh, fully God, fully human. And so Jesus is not sinful. He does not have our sinful nature. He has human nature, but is not corrupted. And so therefore, Jesus does not want their praise. He does not want them to want his power. He can see through them. He sees their hearts. And what does he do? He leaves, not interested in their likes. John 16 through 21. Let's keep reading the next few verses. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake. They got into a a boat and started across the lake to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The lake became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the lake and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So this is amazing how you're seeing it, another miraculous sign. So you may remember this from week one last month, but the Gospel of John is organized around seven signs. Well, up to now, we've seen the first three. The fourth sign is right here of feeding the multitude with that one lunch. And the fifth sign is him walking on water. And so Jesus had told his disciples to take the boat across the sea, but he didn't go with them. He stayed back. And so they are on this Sea of Galilee, and then this massive storm just breaks out, which is common in that part of the world. And they were terrified because as they're trying to manage this storm, they see someone walking towards them. So just can you picture this? You're at night. It's dark. It's stormy. You're freaking out and you see a figure of someone, something walking on the water headed towards your boat. Like, I'm just saying, if I wasn't wet because of the rain, my pants would be heavy. Like, I would be just freaking out, and as would you. And these men were terrified. And it said that Jesus walked three or four miles. He just, Jesus just was walking on the water in this storm. And when he gets close, he says, it is I, it's me, it's Jesus. And of course... They take him onto the boat and they're all just like amazed. But what you see is the second that they are in the presence of Jesus, they experience peace. In the middle of that storm, his presence brings peace. It's very important for us to, to note that as we continue in this story. Now, verse 22, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, the one that the disciples had taken. 
And it says, And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. So all these people, they're paying attention. They saw Jesus not get on the boat and saw his disciples go across. Now, other boats from Tiberias, so that's the name of the same, the same sea, Tiberias, it says, came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So this is the day before where Jesus had fed the 5,000 men and women and children. So it says that that's where they were in this same place. And it says, verse 24, So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So here's this crowd. And the day before, they had gotten all of this free food. And now they're looking for Jesus, and they can't find him, and they can't find disciples. So they get in boats, and they go across the sea to the city of Capernaum, verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? They're like, how did you even get over here? We didn't see you get in the boat. So they know something is up. Verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So they're all looking for Jesus. But it says that Jesus, he knows their hearts. He sees through them. He knows that they did not believe the sign. Remember, these seven signs in John point to him being the Messiah and the Son of God. And they did not believe it. And it says that they were working so Jesus used the word working. That's an interesting word. He says, you've been working hard for what? He says, working to get what their hearts actually crave. It says, you're laboring, you're working for food that perishes. So they have been working hard to find Jesus because they wanted more free stuff. They were looking for him because they wanted what Jesus could give them. And it says that Jesus offers real life, eternal life. And it says that God the Father has set his seal on Jesus. Now, in the ancient world, whenever a, a king or another very important government official would write a letter, um, they would use some wax and they would take their ring and they would press on it. And this was the seal that would then have to be broken in order to open that document, to unroll that scroll. And so that seal showed the authority of the person. So the authority of, say, the king or, or whoever wrote that document. So when it says that God the Father has set his seal on Jesus, it's saying that Jesus has authority. That he is worthy to open the scroll that you see later in Revelation. That he is worthy to break those seals. That he is Worthy because he is one with God the Father. It has set his seal. 
So he says, work for that which offers eternal life. Verse 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? So Jesus says to work for eternal things. And then they say, well, what works must we do? Verse 29. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. They sound just like the woman at the well when Jesus says that he offers living water. And she says, give me this water like they missed it. Just like Nicodemus when Jesus tells him, you must be born again of the spirit. And he was like, How can I be born again from my mother's womb? Just totally missing it. This crowd also is missing it when he says that bread has come down from heaven. Verse 35, just so powerful. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. You hear that? I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So this crowd is asking Jesus, what work does God require us to do? You know, that really is the question, isn't it? Um, Like that is the question of the day. Like that is the religious question. I mean, really, that is what religions are trying to answer. That is the question. What work must I do? What what work does God require for me to get to heaven, to earn my salvation, to make sure that I will go to heaven? What must I do? So that is a religious question. And how can I earn it? How do I contribute towards my salvation? And Jesus answers, the work He's like, God requires that you believe. He's like, it's all about faith. So this work is not even work at all. Jesus did all the work with perfect obedience, with complete holiness. And as the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, religion is all about do. The gospel is all about done. Jesus has done it. And so our work is not even work. It's faith. What does God require? That you believe. Jesus had already done so many signs. He had already been so clear. And yet they say, what sign do you do? We want to see more. They were still thinking in material, physical terms and Jesus here it's awesome he does the greatest like mic drop of all time he says I am I am the bread of life 
And so he says that we are saved by faith. And why is that? Why does the Bible reveal that we are only saved by faith? I mean, God, I guess in theory, he could have said saved by love, like love God. Like there's other things that we can maybe think of in our own human wisdom to think, well, why didn't God reveal that we're saved by some other means? Why is it that we are only saved by our faith in Jesus? Because faith is the anti-work. Faith is what rips away at the human sinful heart that wants to earn it or be good enough. And God is saying, you're not, you're not, but my son is. Just trust me. Feast on me, the bread of life. Now that we're halfway through John and about halfway or so in the sermon too, so hang in there. This is an amazing text. Just wait. Halfway through John, what we see, or John 6 rather, what we see is the theme of this chapter is now really beginning to come into focus. Now we're seeing the dots connecting. So here's the theme of John 6. Only the presence of Jesus can satisfy your soul's deepest hunger. That's it. Only the presence of Jesus can satisfy your soul's deepest hunger. We're all hungry. Our souls are so hungry. See, Jesus doesn't just offer us bread of life. He is bread of life. Jesus doesn't just offer us living water. He is living water. He didn't just point us how to get to God. Jesus is God. He is the way. Jesus is I am. Why he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And this is also very important because this is the first time that Jesus says, I am in the gospel of John. He's going to say it seven times total. So it's not surprising, seven, number of perfection of completion. And so seven times Jesus says, I am. And here's the first one. I am the bread of life. So let's now think about some implications. Like what is the significance of Jesus being the bread of life? Let me give you three, like three core truths about Jesus being the bread of life. Number one, as a bread of life, Jesus gives abundant pleasure. So number one is abundant pleasure. That's what we see as the first significance of Jesus being bread of life. You see, nothing that exists, exists for itself. Everything that exists is for God and by God. And so, for example, Colossians 1 verse 16 makes this clear. It says, all things were created through him and for him. And so, nothing exists for itself. Everything exists for the glory of God. And so, just think for a second. Like, what are some pleasures in life that you enjoy. And what I mean like good pleasures, not bad pleasures, but good things. Like, for example, eating good food. Man, I love eating good food. I'm listening to good music, seeing beautiful places. 
um, doing good, meaningful work, um, enjoying time with your best friend, man, just laughing, like just having a good laugh with people that you really love. These are all gifts. Every single good and honorable pleasure that you enjoy was made by God and for God. It has a specific purpose. There's a design. So it design is to give us just a taste of heaven and make us hunger for Jesus. So when you take a bite of something just delicious, or me, I love my coffee, right? So when I take that first sip and it's like, oh, this is so good. That is meant to remind me that I was made to hunger for Jesus and to taste and to see that he is good. And so every good and honorable pleasure that we enjoy is meant to point to our true hunger for Jesus. So I'll say it this way. All of the deficient pleasures of this life, because let's be honest, even the good pleasures, the best pleasures, they're still deficient. But all of our deficient pleasures that we enjoy in this life points to the abundant pleasure available only in Jesus. It points to an eternal, lasting pleasure that will not be deficient. Brothers and sisters, your soul is hungry. And that hunger in your soul is what is driving you. Well, driving you to what? Well, sadly, sometimes that hunger will, will drive us to pleasures that are not good and unhealthy. So like your soul's hunger will drive you to pornography. Or your soul's hunger will drive you to endless, like mind-numbing social media. Or YouTube videos where you're just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and watching. And it's like, what are you, what are you looking for? We're hungry. Your soul's hunger will drive you to obsess over your finances. It'll, it'll drive you to unhealthy relationships. Because our souls need to be satisfied. But we're looking for abundant pleasure. But every pleasure in this world is deficient. Jesus was so clear when he told us, you don't live by bread alone, but by the word of God. You don't live alone by these physical material realities. Your soul is hungry. You don't live by bread alone, but by the word of God. And remember John chapter 1, where we began this series. Jesus is the eternal word of God. So when Jesus says that we don't live by bread alone, but by the word of God, and Jesus is described as the word of God, he's saying like we literally, we live by Jesus. He sustains us. He is our everything. Colossians 3, 4 says it this way. When Christ, who is your life, appears. Listen to that. Christ, who is your life. It says, then also will you appear with him in glory. One day we'll be resurrected and fully glorified. Until that day comes, we continue to trust in Jesus. And it says here that Jesus is your life.
Is that true? Is that true of you? Is Jesus your life? Is he your greatest passion? Is he your your greatest treasure? Man, may we live, eat, breathe, drink Jesus. He is your life. This first core truth is as the bread of life, Jesus gives abundant pleasure. Number two, as the bread of life, Jesus gives his abiding presence. So he gives abundant pleasure, but also abiding presence. Now that word abiding, we'll see that next month when we get to John 15. Um, It's a very important word. It describes this remaining, this continuing in Jesus. John uh, 15 tells us that we are to abide in the presence of Jesus. And here in John 6, we're seeing a precursor pointing to that, where Jesus is literally offering himself and offering his abiding presence. But this amazing chapter also shows how evil and self-centered the human heart really is. The people that day that heard him speaking, they did not love Jesus. They could care less about Jesus. They only wanted what they could get from Jesus. And just so we're clear, and I think we all know this from our own experience, but when you love what you can get from someone, while not actually valuing the person, that is evil. So, for example, if a husband values his wife's body, or he values the clean clothing that she provides for him, or if he values the hot meals that she cooks for him, or the clean house that she provides for him, or anything else of that matter, or the income that she brings in. If, if a husband values what a wife does for him more than he actually values her, her heart, her mind, her personality, if he values what he gets from her more, that would be evil. And that goes both ways. If a woman values the status or the security or anything else that she gets from her husband but doesn't actually treasure him, that's evil. We ought to love the person for who they are far more than we love what we get from them. And But sadly today, we see this with Jesus. There's this uh, movement called the Word of Faith or the Prosperity Gospel. And at its heart, it's a desire to tap into the power of Jesus, to use, to get power. And really, I hate to say it, but it's the way I see it. It really is a trying to coerce Jesus to do what you want, what you want to get from him, where actually getting Jesus becomes secondary. So you don't need Jesus. You just need his healing or you need moral wealth or whatever it is that you want. And so you name and, and you claim and yes, all through the name of Jesus, but at its essence, it's not craving the abiding presence of Jesus. It's wanting other blessings from Jesus. 
But the whole point of our salvation is not to get material blessings or physical healing. The point of our salvation is that we get Jesus. The whole point of salvation is a union with Jesus. Salvation is eating the bread of life and drinking the living water. Salvation is Jesus being in you and with you. Salvation is knowing God, living eternally with God. It's not about what you get from Him. You get Him. You are redeemed, forgiven, indwelt, so that you can then enjoy the presence of God forever. And you see this across the whole Bible. I'll give you one example outside of John here. Exodus 29, verse 46. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So you see here, God saved them. He rescued them from slavery in the land of Egypt. Why? So that they should know that he is God. He saved them for a purpose. What is that purpose? That so that I might dwell among them. Living with God. Being saved is about experiencing the presence of God. God dwelling in you and you living with him for eternity, enjoying him as your greatest treasure. And it's so amazing to me that as God inspired John and unfolded these events, that Jesus is feeding the 5,000, there's this big conversation that's revealing who Jesus is as the bread of life. And right in the middle of John 6, there's this story of walking on the water. And you would think, huh, it seems kind of out of place. Like, why is walking on the water in the middle of this feeding of the 5,000 and this conversation about the bread of life? Well, because the bread of life is about having the presence of Jesus, his abiding presence. And what was the point of, of walking on the water? What brought them peace? The presence of Jesus. And so feeding the 5,000 as a bread of life and walking on the water, same message. The presence of Jesus brings peace. peace. It's about faith. It's about believing with all your heart. Deeply trusting in Jesus alone. Depending on him it's about your faith. It's not about what you do, how you perform, what you earn, or what you do. It's about who you are in Christ. Core truth number one, Jesus gives us his abundant pleasure. Number two, he gives us his abiding presence. Number three, as a bread of life, Jesus has absolute power. So let's look at this as we continue in this story. Verse thirty. Five, we read down to verse 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. 
All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. We see here not only the abundant pleasure or the abiding presence, we also see the absolute power of Jesus. He is in complete control. He is sovereign over all things. We see here salvation being described as being a love gift, that the Father is literally giving a people to his Son, giving him a kingdom, giving him a people to love. He says, all that the Father gives me. And whatever you're facing today, you have to rest in this identity. Who are you? I know some days you look in the mirror and you just see, oh man, frustration or failure or insecurity. I have those days too. It's not just you. And yet here we see our true identity. Who are you? You are a gift from the Father to the Son. And it says that the will of God, Jesus says, is for him to lose no one that the Father gives him. And he will raise us up on the last day. This is showing his absolute power and his sovereignty over all things, including our salvation. Verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him. Imagine, that's <laughs> grumbling. Yeah. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Man, they think they know Jesus. They think that they know because they know who his parents are here on earth and and uh, they're seeing him as just another human being. Yes, definitely, uh, maybe a prophet or with some unique abilities, but certainly not God and not the Messiah and not bread from heaven. But Jesus tells him in verse 44 that he is sovereign. He is in control of everything. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then verse 45, salvation is described as 
being taught the truth, knowing the truth. So being taught by God. And in verse 47, it says, whoever believes has eternal life. Placing your complete trust in Jesus, knowing that he paid the price with his death and ensuing powerful resurrection leads us to have union with him. And having union with him, having your soul and his Holy Spirit bound together is eating the bread of life. Like this, eating the bread of life is salvation. Verse 52 through 59 says, Then the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Again, they're, they're thinking physically. They're thinking he's a cannibal. They're not hearing the spiritual truth of faith in Jesus. So, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. There you see it again, the word abide. He says that we are called to abide in him. It's all about his presence. Verse 56, those who abide in me and I abide in him. What we're seeing through this teaching of eating bread and drinking his blood, it's all figurative language describing the profound truth that only Jesus can satisfy your soul's deepest hunger. Nothing else can satisfy. You literally exist for the abundant pleasures found in him. Through his abiding presence, we rest in his absolute power to save us. Verse 60 through 65 is the Almost finished this chapter. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Yeah, I agree. This is hard. Verse 61. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. That's key. Spirit gives life. Our flesh, our sinful nature, it says, is of no help. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. That is just amazing. Um, we're seeing the sovereignty of Jesus, his absolute power. As they said, this is hard. 
It's hard because we want to believe that we are in control or that somehow that we contribute towards our own salvation. It says that man-centered religious effort. It says the Spirit gives life. It says the flesh is no help at all. Only the Spirit can do this. The flesh is of no use. And verse 65, he says, I told you no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. The human heart is desperately sinful. It's dead. We cannot feel love for God. We're blind to the glory of Jesus. It says the Spirit gives life. He resurrects. He regenerates. He opens our eyes so that we can see. Think of it this way. He turns on the light and then we see and believe. He gives us a new heart that responds wanting Him and loving Him. Uh, he heals our blindness so that we can see the glory of Jesus. He gives us ears to hear the gospel and hearts to believe. And, and then we taste the gospel. And we taste this message that says, You are a sinner and you deserve hell. And yet, Jesus loves you and died for you. And then we taste that. And we love it. Whereas many others taste that message and they spit it up because it tastes disgusting to them. They reject it. But the gospel is that God loved you first. And then we respond with love and trust. Now, I already know what some of you are thinking. I get it. I'm thinking it too. What about free will? Don't we have free will? The answer is absolutely yes. Humans are free will, moral agents and we are responsible for our own actions we are accountable to god and in this very same text we've already read jesus saying not only he says that it must be granted for us to come by the father but in the same verses he also says whoever comes to me that assumes some free will like whoever comes to me i will never cast out and whoever looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And so where are we? How do we make sense of this? I have a word for you. It's called paradox. <laughs> this is a paradox. And we're called to live in the tension. So how can free will humans make decisions on our own while at the same time God is completely sovereign over all things including sovereign over our salvation. I don't know. I can't, I can't, I can't answer. I, I rest in the mysteries of God. I know that God has a purpose and I study and I read the word and I want to know God and love God with my heart, mind, soul, strength, including my mind. I want to think and study. But at the end of the day, we rest in this mystery that we do not try to rob God of his sovereignty lest we minimize who God is as sovereign. We do not try to minimize our accountability because that makes us less than human. So as a church, how do we respond? Well, we praise God together. We love one another. We maintain a sense of unity. Like we read just now, we don't grumble about these things. We know that God is so much bigger. And if I'm honest with you, um, 
even when we're resurrected and we're in heaven, we're never going to be God. We're always going to be created, yes, without sin, but still not God, only one God. And so we're going to be learning more about God forever. We will literally have eternity to discuss this divine tension and mystery of God's sovereign will and man's free will. So the free agency of God and the free agency of man, we will be discussing these things for eternity because we will never exhaust God. We will never exhaust the knowledge of God. We will be learning and being in awe and trying to understand the mysteries of God forever. And so on this side of heaven, what do you do? Go study. Read the word. Go deep. Experience his abundant pleasure. Abiding in his presence and resting in his absolute power the sovereignty of God is designed to help you rest and know that he's got a good hand and a good purpose and you've been loved with an eternal love. And as a faith family, we love each other and we maintain unity as we pursue Jesus together. So in our last two minutes here as we're dismissed, um, I want to ask you a question and finish this chapter. How will you respond? Verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, I, to whom shall we go? You hear that? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Yeah, Jesus knew that there'd be a betrayer in the room, and yet he is still sovereign, and his purpose could not be stopped. What amazes me here is the crowd left. Um, the crowd, thousands of people, gone, dispersed. Can you just imagine the disciples and how they felt? They're like, oh man, there goes Jesus again with another hard sermon. We were so close to being a mega church, and now the crowds are all gone. Jesus, can you just like soften it a little? Hey, Jesus, can you like take the edge off of your preaching so that we can kind of get a crowd going over here? Listen, Jesus was not interested in drawing crowds. He was interested in seeing the Father drawing people to himself. Where are you today? What's your struggle? What are you hungry for? I love Peter's response. Lord, where do we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we believe you are the Holy One of God. There's nowhere else to go. And Jesus reminds Peter yet again, did I not choose you? This, this should leave us stunned and in awe that you've been loved and chosen by the Creator. Where else would you want to go? He shed his blood to rescue you, offers you his presence. He is the bread of life. Renew a church. May we be a people who are more hungry for Jesus than anything else that this world 
can offer. God, I thank you for having given us opportunity to study your word. We thank you. We thank you that you love us, you have chosen us, and that we can follow you. We ask for your grace, that we can just feed on you, have our souls satisfied and overflow to reach a hurting and dying world that's desperate for you. Use us for your kingdom. We praise you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.